Thank you, Brother Bill. We thoroughly enjoyed the song service this morning. It's good to see each one of you. We appreciate the prayer that's been offered by our brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would petition you this morning to pray for us during this time. We'd stand before you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. Eighth chapter of the book of Romans. I heard a man say once that you know primitive Baptists couldn't preach unless they mentioned the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. A response of another preacher was, Why would anybody want to preach without using the eighth chapter of the book of Romans? <laughs> We're going to begin reading in verse 28 and read through verse 39. If God be our helper this morning, I want us to consider the seven questions. That the Apostle Paul asked at the end of the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Verse 28, 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. First question. What shall we then say to these things? Second question. If God be for us, who can be against us? Third question. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Fourth question, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Fifth question, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Sixth question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Seventh question, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul here in the end of the 8th chapter of the book of Romans employs a wonderful way to teach the Bible. The Apostle Paul, in preaching to this congregation teaching this congregation, writing to this congregation, he asked them questions. Not for the purpose of them answering the question, but for the purpose of him answering the question for them. You see, the Apostle Paul, as a good, loving pastor, as an apostle, he spent time with the congregation. He knew what was on their mind. See, when a pastor spends time with the congregation... 
A preacher spends time with the congregation. He knows what's on their mind. He knows the questions they have. And he, from the pulpit, could ask their questions and answer their questions, address the questions they have on their mind through the preaching of God's Word. That's why it's important that a pastor spend time with the congregation. You know, I enjoy preaching on Sunday morning, but that's not the only part of being a pastor. Being a pastor is spending time with the congregation, showing the congregation you love them, seeing what type of things they have on their minds, the troubles they have. Otherwise, the pastor would not know what to pray for and the needs that they have. This congregation apparently had a lot of questions concerning God's eternal, eternal grace. And with those issues and questions they had, the Apostle Paul, he, he thought of them and asked the questions they had on their mind for the purpose of answering them that they could have assurance that they were God's children. You know, when a minister of the gospel is finished preaching, no one should leave the congregation with more doubt that they're a child of God. Every person should leave the presence of the preaching having more assurance that they are a child of God. Have you ever noticed those that come to the Lord that felt to be sinners, that felt to be condemned, that were poor and in need, when they left the presence of the Lord, they always left in better shape than they arrived. You ever read where anyone that looked for some help from the Lord left in worse shape than they arrived? No. The Apostle Paul was the same way. The Apostle Paul's desire was that the congregation he preached to would be in better shape, have more assurance that they were God's children. These seven questions here, they help me a lot in understanding God's grace, understanding God's purpose of grace, understanding more about God and his dealings with us in the eternal context. You know, this first question the Apostle Paul asked here in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? What things is he referring to? He's referring to the all things that always work together for you good in verse 28. What are those all things that always work together for you good? It's those things that God has purposed. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow. The word foreknow here is not making reference to God's knowledge of all things. God knows all things. God is not constrained and trapped within the parameters of time. God is eternal. God knows all things from the beginning to the end. Now, just because he knows all things, it doesn't mean he causes all things. He knows all things. Do you know if you have a decision to make today to go to the left or to the right, the Lord already knows the consequence of that decision even before you make it, but God does not cause you to make that decision. That decision is made by you. You make decisions of everyday life, and those decisions you make can affect you in your temporal life. Thanks be to God, my decisions in my temporal life is not going to affect eternal grace. <laughs> but God knows all things. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. When the Bible says for whom he did foreknow, it's not making reference to the things that God knows. It's making reference to the people that God knows. The word foreknow literally means whom he foreloved. It's making reference to the people in covenant of grace that God loved before the foundation of the world. And God's love that has no beginning time because it happened before time began and eternity passed. That's, that's the only terminology I have for that, that particular portion of time. Eternity passed before time began. God loved his people. 
And those same people that he loved, notice he also did predestinate. Notice the word predestination, which is found four times in the Bible. It never deals with events in time. Events in time are not predetermined, predestinated by God. It's people that were predestinated by God. You know, people that want to say all events in time are predestinated by God, they're basically saying we're just a bunch of puppets, a bunch of robots. All we're doing is just going through a program. That's not true. God made man upright. God loved his people before the foundation of the world. But here in this life, we as people, God gave us a will, and we make decisions within that will. God foreknew his people. He foreloved his people. He predestinated his people. To be in the image of his son, what that means is without sin one day, perfect and holy and without blame. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren, meaning Jesus would be the head of the household. Moreover, whom, still talking about people, he did predestinate them, he also called. That's the effectual call when God's voice calls us to life. Being quickened in the spirit. You know, when I was conceived in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. You know, there's a law that God put forth in the garden that everything would bring forth after its kind. You know the reason I was conceived a sinner? Because my mom and daddy are sinners. You know the reason cows bring forth other cows? Because they're cows. You know the reason dogs bring forth dogs? Because they're dogs. The reason cats bring forth cats? Because they're cats. The reason sinners bring forth sinners? Because we're sinners. When I was conceived in my mother's womb, according to Psalms 51 and verse 5, I was conceived in sin. But sometime between then and now... And that's my hope. It was the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ that spoke life in my heart. Well, how do you know that happened, Brother Ronnie? How do you have knowledge of that and assurance of that? Because I can look in my life and I can see the evidence of grace. And if I see the evidence of grace in my life, the evidence of grace can only be there if life already existed. And for life to exist, God had to call me to that life to bear that fruit of the Spirit. This found in Galatians 5.22. Someone may say, well, I've never heard God speak to my ear in a voice. I haven't either. I tell you, I've heard some preachers preach the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that brought comfort to my heart. And if the words of the Lord bring comfort to your heart, bring peace to your heart, bring joy to your heart, it's evidence that sometime in times past, before that time, God spoke to your heart and spoke you into life. He called you to Him in life. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. That means made them just as if they never sinned, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, I'm amazed by that, that sentence, because we have not been glorified. There is no sense in which you have experiential glorification. I'm not glorified. I'm still dealing with Ronnie. You're not glorified. You're still dealing with sin. But when we consider God's purpose of grace, brothers and sisters, it's just as good as done. We're there in heaven glorified in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how sure eternal salvation is to every one of God's elect children. And these things, these five things, are always working together for your good. Romans 8.28 is not referring to all things that happen to you as working for your good. You ever heard anyone quote that text and say that? All things that happen to you is always working for you good. You know, if that is true, then we should not be able to go to the Bible and find anything that works against you because it's all working together for you good, right? No contradiction in the Bible. 
If all things that happen to me are all working together for my good, I should not be able to find anything that works against me. Well, I go over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 through 12, I find that the devil's working against me. The devil's not working with God. The devil and God are not on the same team. The devil is working against you. The devil's trying to steal your joy, to kill your happiness. The devil's trying to torment you in your life. And the reason he wants to torment you in your life, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, he knoweth he hath but a short time. See, the devil knows he's just got a short time to torment the children of God. But I got good news for you. If the devil is trying to torment you, it's evidence you're a child of God because the devil does not fight against the devil. Jesus made that abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 25. I'll go over to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. I find that my flesh is working against me in my service to God. That's not working for me. No, my flesh is working against me. The Apostle Paul said, The flesh lusteth against the Spirit. Now, I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I know for is not against, and against is not for. How about that? Will that work? I talked to a man one time, and he was trying to talk to me about the end times. About when the Lord would come back, and he was convinced that the Lord was going to come back to bring down the kingdom to earth, and we was going to have a time of utopia on earth, and I said, I don't believe that. I believe when the Lord comes back, he'll be in the clouds, and he'll take the kingdom up. And I quote a text over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, Then cometh the end, which that's the Greek teleos, which means the folding up of all things. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom. You know, that brother looked at me and he said, You know, you think you know everything, don't you? I said, I don't know everything, but I do know up and down. <laughs> I don't know everything, but I know for and against, and against ain't for. I know that. If this is talking about all things without exception, that's always working for my good, then I shouldn't find anything that works against me. I find things in the Bible that are working against me. Another reason I know that verse 28 is not all things without exception, all things always working for my good, is verse 37. Notice after the Apostle Paul mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, he says in verse 37, Nay, in all these things. Well, in verse 37, if these things are the same as these things in verse 28. The Apostle Paul had no need of saying these things. As the old preacher said in South Georgia, if these things and these things are the same things, Paul didn't have to say these things. <laughs> but these things are not the same as these things. There's things that are working against you that will not be able to overcome you in eternal salvation. But there's things that are always working together for your good that God has purposed for His people and nothing can overthrow them. Another reason I think Romans 8.28 is referring to these things in this context is when I think about all things in the Bible, every time we find that phrase, all things, it must be kept within the context in which we read it. I mean, that is a big key in properly interpreting the Bible. Keeping things in their correct Context. Now, brothers and sisters, if you'd allow me just a carnal moment, okay? Just a carnal moment. I think we've learned in the last 10 years watching news networks that things must be kept in context in which they're spoken. Somebody amen that. We have a lot of people that have said things that news networks have taken way out of the context 
in which they had, they were spoken and tried to present a narrative that had nothing to do with what was going on. If we are to properly interpret the Bible, when we read a verse, it must be kept within the context. Now, we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God. Well, I've already proved the devil's not working for your good. The world's not working for your good. The devil's not working for your good. It's those things that God has purposed that's always working together for your good. To prove this, I want us to look at a couple of verses of Scripture real quick. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, these children of God that's going to be baptized and follow the Lord. And Peter said, And with many words, with many other words, did he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation, or crooked and perverse generation. He tells them there's something you can do to save yourself from the influence of the world. What is that? By being part of the church, by being under the influence of the Word of God, being under the influence of the Word of God. Being at church will save you, not from hell, but save you from this crooked and perverse generation. I want to tell you, I've been saved from a lot of things by just being at church on Sunday morning. Verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. They gladly received it because they were children of God. And were baptized the same day they were added unto them, that's the church, 3,000 souls. Man, that's a, well, that was a meeting, was not? 3,000 people joined the church. I mean, if you think about it, you had the 11 apostles because Judas had left. You had 70 others that Jesus sent out there in Luke chapter 10. You had 81 preachers out of the 120 that were there. So if you do a little math, they probably baptized somewhere between 30 and 38 each. I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you give me two Mountain Dews and line them up, I believe I can do that. And the same day they were adding to them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, because those miracles and signs were given by the apostles to confirm what they were preaching. And all that believed were together, and had all things in common. All things in common. What does that mean? Well, Brother Ryan, that means they all had the same occupation. No, they didn't have the same occupation. Well, they all liked the same colors. They all wore red ties. No, that's not what it means. They all liked the same brand of shoes. Had all things in common now. It says all things. All th they all wore their hair the same way. Is that what that means? They had all things in common. No, it's making reference to all things in common in the house of God. They all believed the same things. They had all things in common concerning what they believed. They had all things in common concerning what they loved in the church. They had all things in common concerning the spiritual things of God. In context, that verse does not mean they all wore the same kind of tie. doesn't mean they all wore the hair the same way. doesn't mean they all wore the same kind of pants. That all things must be kept within the context in which it's given. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul is dealing here with the subject of tongues. Tongues. The, the word tongue appears in the Bible two ways, a member of the body or an intellectual language. 
Here in 1 Corinthians 14, there in Acro-Corinth, people spoke many different languages and they'd all come together to worship the Lord. They were all believers. They'd all heard the truth in their language, but when they come together, people would speak in their own language. And the entire congregation couldn't understand it. I mean, if I was before you and I was speaking in Greek, nothing but Greek, how many in the congregation could understand what I was saying? None? How is that edifying? That's why the Apostle Paul said, I'd rather speak five words in understanding that the congregation be edified than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue or a different language that no one understands. You know, what the world teaches is tongues. That's not what the Bible teaches is tongues. These people spoke different languages. And the Apostle Paul said in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, he said, How is it, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? He said, Let all things be done unto edifying. All things. Is that talking about public drunkenness? Hey, public drunkenness, let's do it to edify. No, that's not what he's talking about. It said all things. It's talking about fornication. I say that joking about my papa. He, he called fornication, fornification. <laughs> talking about fornication. Well, let fornication be done to edify. No, we know that's a sin. Can't do that to edify. He's making reference to those things of God that be taught. Let all things within this context of teaching be done to the edifying of the congregation. Everything that we do in the house of God should be done to the glorification of God and the edification of the children of God. I should not be before you talking about myself to try to gain some popularity for me. No, it should be done to the edifying of the congregation that learn more about the Word of God, that learn more about the Lord. All things there must, must be kept in context. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 21. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, But that ye also may know my affairs, and how I do, Tychus, a beloved brother, a faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. He's going to make known to you all things. He's going to make known to you every atom in the universe, all things. He's going to make known to you the perfect number of how many soldiers are in Rome. He's going to make known to you all the seamstress stitches is on every article of clothing of the soldiers. All things. Matter of fact, when he lets, makes you know all things, you're going to know the same amount as God because you know all things. All things, right? No, that's not what he's talking about. When he says all things here, it's all things within this context. He's going to make known to you all things concerning me and my service to the Lord here in Rome. You see how it must be kept in context? All right, I'm going to give you one more. Now, I could give you a hundred of these verses, but I'm going to give you one more. And to me, this is one of my favorites to prove this point. It's found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 21. This is my favorite text to prove that all things, that phrase, must be kept within the context of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes here to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 21, Therefore let no man glory in men... For all things are yours. All right, let's take that one out of context now. You ready? You know, Brother C.W. and Sister Dale just built them a beautiful house <laughs> over here in Stanley County. Now, Brother C.W., if that text means all things without exception, that means your house is my house. 
All things are yours. I know there's some brothers here that's bought them some vehicles in the last year or so. Brother John, what that means, if all things are mine, your car is mine. My shoes are yours. All things without exception. That's not what it's referred to. The context is making reference to the ministry and the gifts of the ministry. You remember on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, they were all lifted up in the flesh, saying that I was baptized of Peter. You know, somebody says, well, I'm, I'm a real church member because I was baptized by the apostle Peter. And if he was the one that was chosen there by Galilee and he feasts with the Lord, you know, yeah, I, I'm a real church member because I was baptized by Peter. And then there was some there that said, no, I was baptized by the apostle about Apollos. If I was baptized by Apollos, the Apollo, Apollos was just an amazing orator. Not an apostle. Apollos. Apollos was an amazing orator, buttery speaker, and I could prove to you by scripture he's a much more powerful preacher than the apostle Paul. Oh, this buttery preacher, I was baptized by him. I'm a real church member because I was baptized by him. And the apostle Paul was saying, look, why are you worried about who baptized you? Why do you got a favorite preacher? All these gifts that God gave to the church, they're all yours. They're all yours. God called the gifts of the church for you. You know why the Lord called me to preach? God didn't call me to preach to get attention for myself. God called me to preach for you. <laughs> and God has given this gift of preaching for you, Brother John. That's how much he loves you. Sister Janice, Sister Ann, God called me to preach. Sister Betty, he didn't call me to preach for me. You think God called me to preach because he needed more glory in heaven? No, I'm to glorify God, but God called me to preach and gives me light in Scripture for you. For you, all things are yours. All these gifts are yours. So why would it be lifted up and say, hey, this one preacher is my favorite preacher. This is my favorite preacher. This is my They're all your preachers. And God gave them to you. You see how you got to keep it in context? Now let's go back to Romans chapter 8. What shall we say then to these things? These things that are always working together for you good. God's for love, his predestination, his effectual call, his justification and glorification. What are we going to say then to these things? Somebody might say, well, I don't like the way God's doing that. <laughs> I think God should have left it up to me. It should be left up to me. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, if it's left up to us, you know where it all be? We'll all be in hell. That's what it'd be. If God left it up to us, and I tell you what, all you got to do is just do one good thing, and you'll come in heaven. The Bible says, without God in our heart, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. If a person does any good thing, any godly thing, it's evidence that God is already in them, because without God in them, they cannot do any good thing. How many times does the Bible have to say that? What shall we say then to these things? I don't like the way God does it. I think he should have done it different. You know, the Apostle Paul, he kind of expected somebody to say that. Somebody would challenge God's authority and his sovereignty. And he said over in Romans chapter 9, he said, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Would you agree with me this morning that when someone has a lump of clay before them, that's left up to them what that piece of clay is going to be. Have you ever had a lump of clay before you and that clay speak back to you and tell you what it wants to be? Well, if I'm going to agree that someone can have a lump of clay before them and they're going to have authority over that clay, surely I can agree that God's got authority over all the universe. How many of you have ever went to cut lumber? You had an eight-foot piece of lumber 
And maybe you cut it in half, two four-foot pieces, which anybody that's ever bought any lumber lately knows there's not going to be a perfect eight-foot piece. <laughs> so you cut it in half. Have you ever started carrying that half lumber and, and the lumber say, you know, I want you to cut me in quarters, not in halves. I want it to be a third of that board. I've never had that happen to me. Well, if I'm going to agree that I've got power over a piece of lumber, if I'm going to agree that someone's got power over a piece of clay, surely I can agree and glorify God and say He's the sovereign ruler of the universe, and if it's, it's His will to love His people, then it's His will to do so, and I can't answer it. All I can do is, you know, glory be to God. And this morning I'm preaching a sovereign God. What shall I say unto these things? I'm going to preach a sovereign God that does as He pleases, when He pleases, to whom He pleases. I just thank God that He's given me a hope that I belong to Him. You know, God didn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe you anything. God's not in debt to us. Job said in Job chapter 23 and verse 13, but he's of one mind who could turn him, and what's over his soul desireth even that he do it. If it's God's will to love Jacob and not love Esau, that's God's will to do so. God would have been just if he hated us all. We're all sinners. God didn't owe us nothing. But isn't it a precious gospel to preach that God loved his people a number that no man can number out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation? I was talking to a person once about this verse of Scripture. What shall we say then to these things? He said, you know, I don't like what you believe. You believe it's just going to be a few in heaven. You know, sometimes people accuse us primitive Baptists, you know, believing it's just going to be the frozen chosen in heaven. So that's four, just a few more. I said, no, that's not true. I said, actually, the primitive Baptist preach is going to be more in heaven than anybody. Besides the universalists, the universalists believe everybody's going to be in heaven. I don't believe that. I believe there's a hell. I can prove that by Isaiah 14, Luke chapter 16. I can prove it by Matthew chapter 25. I don't believe everybody's, but I believe most people will be in heaven. Most of Adam's race. How do you know that, Brother Ronnie? Because the Bible says that Jesus gave his life for the many. I know that many is the majority of the whole. When my brother and I were little and we were dividing up marbles, if he got few and I got many, I got the most of them, okay? Most people on earth are God's little children. Just most people on earth don't know how they're God's children. The gospel is not to make you a child of God. It's to inform your mind and how you are a child of God. The sovereign God in heaven chose you, loved you, has called you, predestinated you, and one day you will be His. What shall we say to these things? Glory be to God. He gave a sinner like me hope that he owe anything to. Next question. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for you, who can be against you? If God loved you, if God predestinated you, if God called you, God justifies you and glorifies you, who can be against you? You know, some people in the world teach eternal salvations like this. You know, God made a vote, the devil makes a vote, and now it's left up to me to break the tie. But the truth is this, once God voted... (laughs) The polls were closed. (laughs) They were closed. It was done. And if God be for you, who can be against you? Have you ever thought about heaven? Just think about heaven. I want to do this. I know this is not really heaven. This is just me drawing some pictures with my words. Have you ever thought about in heaven being like a courtroom? And here you are on trial. Dear child of God, you're on trial. Do you know your father... In heaven is, is the judge. Our Father in heaven is the judge. He's sitting on the throne. He's the only judge that matters. 
Do you know who your attorney is? How many of you would love to have an attorney in a case that has never lost a case? He's always there when you need him, and he didn't charge you a dime. Would you like an attorney like that? You got one. His name is Jesus. He's our advocate. And he is your elder brother. So you got the father, your father on the throne. You got your elder brother that's your attorney. And the witness is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the witness. What about a prosecuting attorney? You know, prosecuting attorney. Prosecuting attorney's been thrown out of the courtroom. See, no prosecuting attorney. Now, if the father, your father is the judge, your elder brother's your attorney, and the Holy Spirit is the witness, and there's no prosecution, what are we going to say? If God be for us, who can be against us? Nobody can be against us if God is for you. If God loves you, that's it. It's over. You know what that means? That means you're going to be in heaven one day, and nothing can change it. He that spared not his own son, verse 32, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Notice the way this is worded. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Have you ever noticed the text over in Hebrews 4.15? The Apostle Paul said, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You know what Paul is saying? It's impossible for Jesus not to be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. It's impossible. Like a loving mother that would have a child, no matter what that child does, when that child's suffering, that loving mother will suffer with that child. I have talked to loving mothers whose sons lived in such a wayward way, an ungodly way, they ended up in jail. But I don't tell you, that mother would cry about her son being in jail. She loved her son. And when he went through, he, she was touched by that and worried about her son. She loved her son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord loves us more than any mother ever loved a son. The, love, the Lord loves us more than any father ever loved a son. I think about the father of the prodigal son and how his heart probably yearned for his son and he hurt for his son and worried about his son. The Lord, it's impossible for him not to be touched by the problems you have. Why? He cares about you. He cares about you. Take that. That information cannot, and put it right here to this verse. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know what that means? That means if God does not give you heaven, after Jesus died for you on the cross, he, can, he ceases to be God. He has to give it to you. The word freely literally means without a cause. It's not a cause on my part that I have it, but because Jesus does this for me. If God does not give me, if Jesus done it for me, if he took my place on the cross of Calvary, if God sends me to hell after Jesus took my place, God ceases to be a just and holy God. God cannot practice double jeopardy. It's ungodly, it's unjust. If Jesus died for you, the Bible says he took our place on the cross of Calvary. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. My mama's here this morning. She'll tell you that's one of my daddy's favorite verses. You know why it was one of daddy's favorite verses? He knew he was ungodly. And if, and if I'm ungodly, that text tells me Jesus died for the ungodly. And there's hope for me, just a sinner in the sight of God, that Jesus took my place. And if he took my place, God has to give me heaven. 
otherwise he cannot be God. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15, He that justifieth the wicked. Well, it's a good text for today's world. He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, yea, they both are an abomination in the sight of the Lord. He that justifies something that's wicked, it's an abomination in God's sight. He that condemns something that's right, it's an abomination in God's sight. If something is right, I should stand up and declare it to be right. If something is wrong, I should stand up and declare it to be wrong. Otherwise, it's an abomination in the sight of God. If Jesus died for us on the cross and all of our sins, <laughs> if the Father sends you to hell, he's unjust. That's what that t- And we know that God's not unjust. God is just. God is holy. God cannot sin. He cannot do wrong. He's holy. He's perfection. And since he's perfection, Jesus died for you. You will freely, without any cause on your part, because there's nothing you could have done to earn it, you will have heaven just as sure as Jesus is in heaven. Now, brother, that is good news for a poor sinner. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who's going to lay anything to the charge? Who's going to charge you with sin in heaven? Who's going to charge you? Do you know what's necessary to have justification? The word justification, I want to break it down for you. Just as if you never sinned. That's what it means. Just as if you never sinned. That's what it is in heaven. For you to be in heaven, it it takes three things to be justified. You, the guilty person, will have to be cleansed of your wrongs. Two, the offense, the penalty of the offense will have to be paid. And three, the record of your wrongdoings will have to be removed. Otherwise, you don't have justification. Do you realize if Jesus did just paid for my wrongs, but he didn't remove the record and didn't cleanse me, I can't go to heaven. Mm-mm. I'm filthy in sin. Well, what if Jesus cleansed me with his blood and he paid for the penalty, but he didn't remove the record? Well, then somebody's going to search and find here where I did something wrong. Oh, yeah, I remember back here, old Ronnie right here, he did something wrong. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to convince your mind when you get to heaven, there's not going to be a big screen TV there playing all your wrongs you've done. And if that's true, you better hope you're not in line behind me because you're going to be there a while. <laughs> no, when Jesus died for you on the cross, his blood cleanses you from your sin. Revelation 1.5, who washed us from our sins in his own blood, he cleanses you of your guilt. He also paid the penalty. See, God is not an unjust God in heaven just to sweep your sin under a rug. No, God's law is upheld. God's law must be upheld. Jesus paid the entire penalty of sin. If someone says, well, I don't believe that, well, it's unbelief of sin. Well, it is a sin. Well, if he paid for all your sins, he paid for that too. You don't have to believe something for something to be a fact. My believing in something does not make it fact. <laughs> you know, I can stay here before you and believe I got a million dollars in my bank account. That doesn't make it a fact. I can stand here and say, I believe when I get out of church yard, I'm going to have a brand new Camaro Z28. That won't make it a fact just because I believe that. And by the way, I don't believe that. <laughs> believing in something doesn't make it fact. But believing in something that's a fact gives you assurance in the fact. How many of you remember me telling about my brother and the accident that he was in where he failed to yield the right of way years ago? And he was worried about this insurance claim that he had and this man suing him. 
Well, the insurance company sold the claim, and Bobby finally called them, and they said, oh, we sold the claim weeks ago, Mr. Lauderman. What if Bobby would have said, well, I don't believe it? Would it change the, the fact that the claim was settled? Wouldn't change the fact. By him not believing it, it caused him to lose a lot of sleep. But the fact was the fact. Believing in the fact gives you some rich blessings in your temporal life. And you as a child of God, I want you to be convinced that Jesus done this for you and believe this fact that you would have rest and peace in your life and you won't go to bed tonight like I did from age 9 to age 16 worried about hell. I want you to be assured that Jesus has saved you from that and you've got a heavenly home to look forward to and you have a blessed future that's going to be better than what we're going through right now. Man, I need something better right now. I'm tired right now. Do you get tired right now? Man, I get tired right now. I get tired of all the bad news. I mean, every time I look at a newspaper, bad news. Turn on TV, bad news. Listen to the radio, bad news. I get tired of bad news. I want some good news. You know, when we get to heaven, there ain't going to be no more bad news. It's going to be all good news. It's all going to be good and glory. I'm looking forward to something better. And believing that gives me peace in my life. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Jesus' blood cleanses you from your sin. Jesus paid for all your sin on the cross of Calvary. All your sin. I'm going to tell you he paid for all your sin. I'm not going to take it back and say there's something else you need to do. I'm going to tell you he paid for all your sins on the cross of Calvary. Now there's something you should do as his child. We should live a life to his glory. Everything that we do should be lived to his glory who saved us from something that we couldn't save ourselves from. Jesus paid for all of our sins. He also removed the record. There's no record of your sin in heaven with God the Father. According to the Bible, God remembers our sins and iniquities no more. According to the Bible, Isaiah 38, verse 17, our sins have been cast behind the back of God. I don't know how that's possible, but Jesus did it. According to the Bible, chapter, Micah chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus has cast your sins in the depths of the sea. Many years ago, there's a submarine went deep in the depths of the sea, and they called on the radio and said, Hey, do you see anything? He said, Thank God Almighty, I can't see nothing. This is where Jesus cast my sin. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20 verse 1 teaches us on that last day there'll be no more sea. Not only is he cast our sins in the depths of the sea, one day where he cast our sins is going to be gone. Who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Jesus removed the entire record. You know, if I was caught speeding out here on the highway and I paid the ticket, I just paid the ticket from a wrong. The record of my wrong still exists. The next time I go by an officer going too fast, he's going to look it up and say, hey, this boy's got a problem with speeding. <laughs> I've got a record. Jesus not only cleansed you with his blood, not only paid for all your wrongs to God the Father who was satisfied and the resurrection declares that he was satisfied, but he also removed the record of all your sin. You remember in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 15 when the children of Israel were laboring rebuilding the walls of the temple? And you remember those Samaritans, those Sanballat and all of them, Tobiah, they wanted to see the work stopped. We want to see this work stop. They were opposing the children of Israel. What can we do to stop them? Well, we can't stop them just by going against them. I tell you what, let's do. Let's write some letters over here to the Medo Persians. And what we'll do, we'll tell them, hey, if you'll search it out, you'll find this people is a very rebellious people. They're a people that causes insurrections. You know what the Medes and Persians did? They did a search and they found the record. These people have been guilty of insurrection. They have been guilty of being rebellious. Let's stop the work. But you know, 
with us, the children of God, and what Jesus done for us, you can search all heaven, you can search all hell, you can search all the earth. You're not going to find a record of your sin. Now, God chastises us as his children, as a father and child here in this world, but concerning your record of sin in heaven and hindering you can go to heaven, Jesus Christ removed the record by his offering of the cross. So that's what it means, just as if you never sinned. Who is he that condemneth? Who's going to condemn you? You ever notice the text over in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, having spoiled principalities and powers? You know what that word spoiled there means? It means to literally disarm. That's what it means, disarm. Do you remember watching the cowboy and Indian movie? You know, the cowboys walking to a bank. Hold up your hands. Everybody's holding up their hands. What if somebody walked up there and took their guns away? How many people can hold up their hands then? Just disarm the Indians. How many of the children of Israel were afraid of Goliath after David cut his head off? He disarmed him. Took his sword away from him. Cut his head off. Do you know your enemy, those that would want to condemn you, the devil? They got no weapons. Jesus disarmed them. <laughs> He's full of principalities and powers. I mean, that's how sure your salvation is. There's no one that can condemn you. It is Christ that died, yea, rather than is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to separate you from this salvation you have? Who's going to separate you that you won't be in heaven one day? Who's going to do it? Paul said. Shall tribulation? And we do have tribulations in this life. The word tribulation there is like being squeezed under pressure. It's like a toothpaste tube that's rolled up from the bottom. You know, just get all you can out of it. Have you ever felt like that? Just felt like you're in so much pressure in this world? Well, shall the tribulation in this world stop you from going to heaven? Paul said no. What about distress? This word distress, which is stennis chlora in the Greek language, is, is making reference to someone that's backed into a corner that feels all alone. Have you ever felt like you're just backed in a corner and there's no one in the world like you? You ever felt like that? You know, the world wants you to feel like that. There's no one like you in the world. You know, the world and the devil can make you feel all alone. But you're not all alone. He's with you always. You're with Him. No matter how much this world wants to make you feel all alone, and the devil make you feel all alone, it cannot separate you from the unity, the oneness that you have with God because of His grace. And one day, brothers and sisters, you will see what kind of family you have. See, that's why I'm happy to come to church and be with people. I know I'm not all alone. I got friends in Christ. And one day, brothers and sisters, we get to heaven and we see this big family we have. Brothers and sisters, we didn't even know. We'll know then with surety we're not all alone. Shall persecution? There's been people in the Bible that confessed Jesus Christ that lost their head. Remember John the Baptist? He lost his head. Persecution can separate me from my head, my body, but it can't separate me from Christ. Famine? I mean, there's been governments in the world history that cut nations off from food. There's been nations cut off from rain supply. I mean, they'd lose their, their human health, but still can't be separated from the love of Christ. What about nakedness, being stripped of all that you have? I mean, I, I enjoy all that I'm, I'm blessed to have here in America. We could lose all that. Still won't separate you from the love of Christ. Peril, dangers in this world. This world's becoming more and more dangerous. The dangers in this world, it can cause you to lose your peace in this world. Can't separate you from the love of Christ. What about sword? 
What about government powers? You know, government powers have separated families. I mean, you go through a history of this world, government powers have separated families, but it can't separate you from that family. And the Apostle Paul said in verse 36, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted. This is what the world thinks about you, dear child of God. You're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, and all these things we go through, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. More than conquerors. What does that mean, more than a conqueror, dear child of God? If you ever saw a football game and one team would win, and you'd say, boy, I'll tell you what, they conquered it. They conquered the game. They conquered the other team. But they still got skinned elbows and sweat all over their head and skinned knees. They weren't more than conquerors. They just won that day. You know what a more than conqueror is? And by the way, this is the Greek, Hupernikeo. This is where Nike tennis shoes get their name right here. More than conquerors. Nike tennis shoes are not more than conquerors. The Lord has made us more than conquerors. What it means when we get to heaven, there will be no skin knees and skin elbows. All the problems this world will be gone. All your mistakes that you've made in your life will be gone. And we'll be happy forever. You know why we'll be happy forever? Because it's God that's purposed for you to be there. It's God that's executed the work that you would be there. And it's God one day that will come and get us and take us home so we will be together forever, forever. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 1. I'll end with this. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare, which literally means to provide. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again unto you and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Where is Jesus right now? Where's he at? He's by the right hand of the Father. Where will you be one day? You're going to be by his right hand, there by the right hand of the Father. Why? Because God has purposed it. And what God has purposed, no man is able to thwart. May God rest and bless us our prayer. Is anyone here this morning that feels that God's grace is in your heart? God loved you before the world began. God has saved you by his grace. You want to tell the world, I love God and I love his truth.